it just takes a song like that. You got to like listen to it over and over and say, okay, that's right. That's what's true. And one song, one play just doesn't do it for me. Maybe your head is a little thinner than mine, but it takes several times. So thank you, worship team. This morning, we are continuing our series for this week and then two more Sundays. It's called Conversations with Jesus. And so we're in Mark chapter 11, Mark chapter 11 and 12. Instead of doing the scripture reading, it's kind of a long passage, and I wanted to read the scriptures as we moved along through these two chapters. So it'll be helpful for you to have your Bibles open. If you don't have a Bible, the Blue Pew Bible in front of you, page 848, Mark chapter 11 and Mark chapter 12. One of the classic courtroom scenes that Hollywood came to bring us, and I think even if you're a college student, you might have seen this scene somewhere. It's from A Few Good Men. And if you've seen that, that movie, you know the, the courtroom scene already. It gets replayed over and over many times, and Tom Cruise is the lawyer, and Jack Nicholson is the witness, and Cruise is trying to get to the truth. And he, he just can't get Nicol, Nicholas to say what's true. And so he kind of, in this uh, sort of tense scene, he's asking question after question after question, trying to get the witness to say what's true. And he finally shouts, I want the truth! And then everyone who's seen the movie, you know what he, Nicholas, Nicholas says back, what he says, you can handle the truth, right? That's not how he said it, but... That is what he said. You can't handle the truth. It was too heavy. It was too big. It was, it was something that this, he didn't think this person was ready to hold on to, ready to really grapple with the truth of reality. And I would say that's a similar scene that's unfolding in Mark 11 and 12. What we find out is that the people who are interrogating Jesus, they can't handle the truth. This, the scene unfolds and humanity is the lawyer and we have put Jesus on trial. And we'll see pretty quickly that they can't handle the truth and you see at the very end of this passage that we're reading through, verse 34... They have these series of battering questions, and then this passage ends in verse 34. And after that, no one dared him ask any more questions. Why? Because they just couldn't handle the truth. Now, this is a, a long section. I want to push these series of questions to, together and give you some sense of the intensity of the scene. Mark 11 uh, begins... The, the last week in Jesus' life. He has entered into Jerusalem. You might remember it's called Palm Sunday. We celebrate that the Sunday before Easter. And this is the last week. And so he's right at the beginning of this week. And the very first thing he does is he comes into the temple area, the place where you meet with God, and he begins acting like the temple is his own house. And he says, okay, I'm getting rid of people who don't really belong here so that the people who really want to come and meet with God, they come. And this stirs up so much anxiety in the people who are in authority, they come and start asking Jesus 
a, a series of questions. And the first question you see here in verse 27 and 28 of chapter 11, and they came again to Jerusalem. And he was walking, Jesus was walking in the temple, the chief priest, now here are the inter- here's the interrogation team, the chief priests, scribes, elders came to him. These are all the religious rulers. Jesus is turning things upside down and they come to him, verse 28, by what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority to do them? The, the, the people who should know the most about the Bible are wondering how Jesus got his authority. And they should have known. If anyone should have known, if anyone has been paying attention to what's been happening with Jesus across his life, they should know where his authority is coming from. Mark chapter 1, John the Baptist comes quoting Isaiah 40 of the Old Testament, and he's telling people, I'm John the Baptist. I'm the messenger that's coming before the true king. I'm going to make straight the paths so that when the real king enters, you'll, you'll know that he's here. If you read through Mark, you see Jesus opening the, the eyes of the blind, making the deaf hear, causing a lame man to walk, all the fulfillment of Isaiah 53. In Mark chapter 2, Jesus stuns a group of people and says, I have the power to forgive someone's sins. And they say, who could could forgive sins except for God alone? And then Jesus quotes from Daniel 7, and he says, he's the son of man. Now listen to Daniel chapter 7. Therefore, this is Daniel in the Old Testament seeing somebody in the future. Therefore, there before me was one like a son of man who was given authority. Glory, power, all people, nations, and men of every language will come and worship him. And Jesus is saying, I'm the son of man. I have the power to forgive sins. And that is only for God alone. And then in Mark 11, when Jesus enters Jerusalem, it's during the Passover. And he rides in on a donkey, fulfilling Zechariah 9. The Jewish pilgrims are singing Psalm 118. When the Pharisees come and demand that Jesus silence the people, Jesus quotes Isaiah 55. I tell you, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. If anyone should have known how Jesus got his authority, it should have been these Old Testament scholars. Because all of Jesus' life, he's just saying, I'm fulfilling what you guys have been studying your whole life. I'm a perfect fit for what you've been looking for. And somehow they can't see it. And I want to ask why. If you'd studied the Old Testament your whole life and you see someone like a hand in a glove and he fits perfectly everything you've studied and then you say, I don't believe you, I don't trust you, I don't think you have authority, why is that? Because you've got evidence. You've got proof. And when you read the rest of this conversation between Jesus and the chief priest, you find out that the chief problem isn't evidence. The chief problem for the chief priests, the chief problem for humanity, is we don't want to give up being chief. They really don't need evidence. They just don't want to lose authority. 
And if you're here this morning and you have real questions about Jesus, we want you to ask them. We want to do all we can to try to give answers, to, to provide what we think is real evidence that Jesus is who he said, it is, said he is. But I want to suggest that one of the chief problems for everyone, and maybe for you, is that you really just don't want to let go of your own authority. You don't really need more evidence. You just want to be chief. When I was a Young Life staff person, I would take high school students to camp. And almost every time we did this, I would have this conversation with a student. And they would say, okay, so I'm hearing Jesus and I'm somehow hearing him either for the first time or I'm understanding this whole thing about having a relationship with Jesus. And Paul, are you telling me, this is the question I would get every weekend or week, if I follow Jesus, does that mean I'm going to have to give up and then fill in the blank? Right? For those of us who've had that experience, you know, that's a question. Okay, I'm, I'm leaning this way, but I'm wondering as I'm leaning towards Christ, does that mean I'm really going to have to give up? And I would say back, if you follow Jesus, you must be willing to relinquish all authority over your life. And that's a lot harder to do than just trust evidence. Some of us may have something that's just a question if we just had an answer to it. And that, that is some people. But most people want to be chief. I like being chief. And yes, you might have to give up your whole life. You will have to give up your whole life for Jesus. And that's a lot tougher. Second question, chapter 12, verse 13. And then they sent some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians. So this is the second wave of interrogation. There's two different groups, Pharisees and Herodians, to trap Jesus in his talk. And then this is how they were going to do it. They came and asked him this question, Teacher, we know that you are true and don't care about anyone's opinion, for you're not swayed by appearances. This is all sort of a buttering up kind of effort. But you truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? Verse 15, Jesus, knowing their hypocrisy, said to them, Why do you put me to the test? Bring me a denarius, a coin, and let me look at it. And they brought him one, and he said, Whose likeness and inscription, whose, whose image and inscription is on this coin? As we know, there's a picture of somebody on the coin. There's some writing on the coin. And then they said, well, the, the inscription, they said to him that the, it says Caesar. It's the picture of Caesar. It has an inscription with Caesar on it. And Jesus answered, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. In the New Testament times in Jerusalem, there was, a, there was a tax. The Roman Empire controlled that area. The Roman Empire needed money, so they had taxes. And they had a special tax called a head tax. It really wasn't very significant in terms of the amount, but it was significant in what it said. And everybody in the Roman Empire had to pay this tax. And that's what they're coming to ask Jesus. Do we have to pay this 
head tax. And they feel like these two different groups of people have got Jesus in a bind. Because the Pharisees, they're the conservative people. They hated the Roman rule. They hated the tax. They're super popular amongst sort of the blue-collar Jewish people. And they know if Jesus says, you need to pay the tax, there might be a revolt against Jesus. But the Herodians, they get all their power from the Roman government. So they're for the head tax. And if Jesus says, now, don't, don't pay the head tax, then all the Roman army might come against them. So you see, they have Jesus in this bind. Whether he says yes or no, some group of people are going to come and attack Jesus. And that's these two people, they hate each other. But what they don't want to lose, they don't want to lose being chief. So they gather together and say, hey, let's trick Jesus because it doesn't matter who wins here because we just need him eliminated and then we'll go on being enemies. Jesus sees their hypocrisy and he says, well, let's look at the image and likeness on the coin. The, the image is Tiberius, the current ruler at that time of the Roman Empire. Like you might see George Washington on a quarter. And then this inscription. Now imagine this. Here's the, the little writing underneath the headshot of Tiberius. King, son of God, high priest. So just for a moment, imagine Jesus holding up this quarter, seeing a picture of his creation, and underneath it says, this is the king, this is the son of God, this is the high priest. Jesus answers then, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God. Jesus says in a very interesting way, in a marveling way, anything that's stamped with Caesar's image, you got to give it back to him. Which, you know, as a taxpayer, you wish you would have come up with a different answer right at that point, do you not? But if it's got Caesar's image on it, Fine, pay him. I don't care about that. But if anything has God's image stamped on it, God owns that image. What did they know? Every human being is made in the image of God. Every human being has God's image stamped on him or her. And I don't care about the money. It can circulate any way it wants. But everybody who has their image stamped by God, you're supposed to be in circulation for God. And when people come across you and I, they're supposed to say, hey, he reflects the king. When I see his image, I see God in him. And so we might ask ourselves a question here. If somebody's looking at your life, whose image would they see? I mean, would they say, he really likes to be chief? Or would they somehow say something about his or her character, her, his or her service, his or her kindness, his or her grace, his or her mercy? It reflects something bigger that must be fueling their life. And they might get a, a smell, they might get a sense, they might get a showing of the real king by looking at your image. 
Well, Jesus stumps the Pharisees and Herodians. So now, third question, enter the Sadducees. Verse 18. Sadducees come next. And they say to him, the Sadducees come to him, the Sadducees who believe there is no resurrection, they come and ask Jesus this question. Now, the Sadducees are like the top shelf scholar. These are the top-notch guys. And there's two interesting facts about the Sadducees. One, they don't believe in the resurrection. So when you're doing vacation Bible school, the Sadducees are sad, you see, because they don't believe in the resurrection. So now you'll remember the Sadducees. They don't believe in the resurrection, and they only adhere to the first five books of the Bible called the Torah or the Book of the Law or the Book of Moses. So here comes sort of the top shelf. I mean, we're running through these interrogators. We've got to send in like the big guns. So here come the Sadducees. And they ask this question, verse 9. Teacher, Moses wrote for us, see, Moses, this, these five books that we believe in, that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. So in the Old Testament, because land was important and staying in the family was important, if you married somebody and they died, the, the man died, if they had a younger brother, you got married to the younger brother. So let's suppose there were seven brothers, verse 20. The first took a wife, and when he died, he left no offspring, so the second took her. And unfortunately, in this illustration, he dies, and they don't have any children. And then the third, and then the fourth, and then the fifth, and the sixth, all the way down to the seventh. This is a very unlucky family right here. But all these guys die, and then their question in verse 23, so when the wife uh, rises again, whose who's wife is she going to be? You see, just you feel that? We don't even believe in the resurrection. But we're pulling out some kind of piece of the law. We're making some weird situation that you can't possibly answer because it would never really happen this way. And we're just trying to throw you off guard. Verse 24, Jesus' response. Is this, is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you don't know the scriptures or the power of God? Mm, ow. Here's the top shelf people. You know what, guys? You don't know the scriptures. You don't know the power of God. When they rise from the dead, they'll neither marry nor be given in marriage, but will be like angels. You won't be an angel. Angels aren't married, so you're not going to be married in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses? See, book, I'm using your book, guys. And in the passage about the burning bush and how God spoke to Moses saying, I am the God of Abraham. I am the God of Isaac. I am the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. So Jesus bookends his statement. Hey, guys, you're wrong. Here's why you're wrong, and let's remember, you're wrong. <laughs> so this is a, uh, it's in a pleasant little back and forth here. First thing Jesus does, he informs them that there is, there is actually a resurrection, and because, he's, because God is the God of the living. 
I am the God. Of, I currently am the God of Abraham. I cur- currently am the God of Isaac. I currently am the God of Jacob because all those people are alive right now. So there is a resurrection. And when you are raised from the dead, there is one marriage. That's Jesus and the church, not a man and a wife. And finally, and most importantly, as we said in the bookends, you just don't know the scriptures. Jesus gives these three groups the truth, and they can't handle the truth. They walk away, and because they can't handle the truth, a few days later, these are the people who put Jesus to death. I can't handle the truth. I can't really stop being the chief. So I've got to put Jesus outside and I've got to walk away. And if he comes back one more time, I've got to put him to death. Now this has good application for everyone here. But I want to specifically speak to college students. Because most of you all have read the statistic. College students who went to church in high school... How many of those percentage-wise stayed going to church in college? 30%. So 70% walk away. Now, for whatever reason, and even if that stat is off, maybe it's 50-50 in reality. I don't know, but that's the sort of the stat that you'd find online. Somehow in the four years, you go from trusting that Jesus is real or having some sense of that, but somehow in that four years what happens is you want to be chief. And it happens in all kinds of different ways and through all kinds of different messages, but you come out the other end and you've just put Jesus aside and say, hey, you know what? I'm smart enough to be chief. Being chief of your life is a terrible place to be. And I'm pleading with you. Don't walk away. Ask questions, wrestle, be confused, but keep staying in the fight. Because getting out of the fight altogether is a terrible exile away from God. And many of those people come back later, but they've made a host of mistakes that they have to recover from. I'm looking at the college students because the college students sit here, but it could be any of us right here. You could have walked away some time ago, and you wandered in here today, and you said, yeah, I've lived my whole life now as chief. And look what it's gotten me. I'm miserable. That's why I'm here. I'm looking for some kind of hope. Jesus is that hope. Most of the time, people don't need evidence. They need to give up being chief. Well, one last guy enters the picture, and this is where we'll close. He's called a scribe. He's kind of like a lawyer. If there was ever any kind of religious battle, they pull in a scribe and say, well, what does Scripture really say? And this scribe comes up in verse 28, and he asks this hotly debated question, what's the most important commandment? 
I mean, there's 613 Old Testament commandments. Can you just give us like the top one? Because I'm having hard with I'm having a hard time with all 613. Let's just get one down. And so Jesus responds and says, "Well, there's two." He quotes Deuteronomy 6, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. All, 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 all. In the Greek, you know what all means? All. (laughs) It means all. And I love this definition by Sinclair Ferguson, a, a scholar. The first law... It requires comprehensive, universal, undiluted love for God with every ounce of one's being. So that's how he defines all. Let me just say that one more time. Loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength requires comprehensive, universal, undiluted love for God with every ounce of your being. That's the first law. The second one's like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Here's how John Piper defines this. This command seems to demand that you tear the skin off your body and wrap it around another person so that you feel just like the other person. All their longings for their own safety or health or success or happiness, now I feel. So let's just take these as the two gauges. How are you doing I mean, if it's just two laws, how are you just doing on these two? How are you doing on loving the Lord with with comprehensive, universal, undiluted love? Feeling good? Check. Got that down? How about loving your neighbor as yourself? You, you, You get into a situation where your neighbor's hurting and you want to tear your skin off. You want to wrap it around them so you understand all of their feelings, all of their emotions. Well, if you're like me and you check those two gauges, those don't look good. That's why in verse 34, no one dared ask him any more questions. (laughs) But I want to notice just how the scribe responds and this, this leap forward, I think, Jesus makes towards this guy that's promising. The scribe doesn't understand everything But look in verse 32. This is such a funny little verse. He looks at Jesus after he says this, and he says, hey, you're right. Now imagine, I mean, just imagine, you're Jesus. Thanks, buddy. I mean, (laughs) that happens a lot of times when I talk. But he's affirming Jesus, hey, you got that one right. You've truly said that he is one, and there isn't any other And to love him with all our heart and understanding and strength. And to love our neighbor as oneself. And that's all that that so much more than the whole of all my burnt offerings and all of my sacrifices. And then Jesus saw that he answered wisely. And I think he leaps forward saying, you're not far from the kingdom of God. See, he hadn't had that kind of reaction to these other three. But something about what this man answers causes Jesus to come forward and say, you're moving in the right direction. I'm asking, now, how is that? And I would say the first light dawns on this scribe while he's standing there in the temple and he's made all these sacrifices and he realizes all of my offerings, all of my sacrifices couldn't possibly make up 
for how unbelievably far away I am from these commands. I look at these commands and I say, I can't do this. And I've done all these sacrifices. I've tried to be, I've tried to be obedient, but I'm still so far away. And do you see, just that recognition that I can't get there on my own. Jesus is going, yes, you are so close. If you would just start with, I can't make it on my own. Do you feel that tiny little step forward? Now, pretty soon the guy's going to realize, I can't even step forward. But right now he's just saying, I can't make it on. It's just my first recognition. I need help outside of myself. I can't get into the kingdom of God by myself. But what's the second step this scribe needs to see? You, you all know the answer. Three days later, he sees what it looks like to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. He visibly sees someone whose skin gets torn off and wrapped around someone else who's hurting him. That's the gospel. That's the truth. That you and I cannot make it on our own. And if we would just take that little step and say, I can't do it. I've tried to be chief my whole life, and it's not getting me anywhere. Is there any outside help? Jesus is going to say, yes, I'm the help. I'm going to do everything you couldn't do, and you're going to get in on me alone. That's called grace. That's called the gospel. And that's the truth. Now, the question for us Can you handle the truth? Or do you still need to be the chief? Let's pray together. Lord, you read this passage. I read this passage. I see so much of myself, so much of my self-justification. Trying to somehow get me off the hook and put you on the hook. I'm the pastor of a church. It's so easy. That's why I need a song to remind me of the truth, that I'm not the chief, that you are good, that, I, that you can be trusted. I can follow after you even if you're going down a dark tunnel. And Lord, I pray for myself, my soul, every soul here, that they just would let go of being chief. Somehow in their heart, somehow in their spirit, they would take that same little step forward the scribe took to say, there isn't anything I can do that's good enough. And you step in, you rush in and help us see the grace of the cross. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.